You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girl down. You already know. There's thousands of people that know that I'm gay and they're going to think that I'm lying. And it really, really disturbed me. I really needed to, to, to get out and feel that exchange of energy between humans, just straight to the heart emotions. You, you know, it's all about uh, sexuality and inciting um, change. And it, and it was that for, you know, a hundred years almost. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Pop-Tarts. Me, 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 me. I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We're both editors of Bust Magazine in New York City. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And our guest today is a true rock legend, Melissa Etheridge. Is an Hello. unparalleled singer, songwriter, guitarist, author, and activist who has been making irresistible blues rock albums for over 30 years. She was a bit of an underground sensation when she first got started in the late 80s, but in 1993, everything changed when she released her breakthrough fourth album, Yes, I Am. It spent 138 weeks on the Billboard charts. Thanks to the monster hits, I'm the Only One and Come to My Window, it went platinum and then it went on to sell more than six million copies, people. It's a lot. It's a lot of merchandise. Now, the Oscar and Grammy winner is back and touring with her 17th album, One Way Out, a collection of songs from her early life that are finally getting to see the light of day. I cannot wait to talk to her all about it. Welcome, Melissa, to our show. Yay! Hello, 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 hello. <laughs> we are beyond thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you so much. A pleasure. Um, first off, are you on tour right now? What's it like out there? I am on tour. I'm out here in the world and we've been in, in all kinds of different places. And you know what? Everybody's, everybody's really wanting to get, move forward and, and, you know, kind of set up things where we can get together again. And everyone's really wanting to follow protocols and do the right thing. And, but I tell you, by the end of each show, Everyone is just so uplifted and and happy to have gathered together in a in a group and and celebrated music. Amazing. Um, if I can, I would like to begin with your origin story. I know that you're originally from Kansas and you've been playing in bars since much earlier than you were allowed to be in a bar. Yeah. What was your early life like and how did you find your way not just to music but to rock stardom? Wow, well, that's a that's a long story. But um, <laughs> I grew up in uh, I grew up in Leavenworth, Kansas. My father was a high school teacher. My mother worked on the army base, and um, I he he brought a guitar home actually for my sister one day when uh, I was eight years old. Uh, the guitar teacher said, "Oh no, I couldn't take lessons yet because my fingers would bleed and I wasn't old enough." And I begged and pleaded and begged and pleaded, and he said, "Well, okay." And her fingers are going to bleed and my fingers bled, but I kept playing and I kept playing and, and, um, I learned and, um, started you know, as soon as I learned three chords, I started writing songs cause you know, that's a song. And, um, and then I, uh, I, I 
started playing in country bands around my hometown. And that led to more uh, cover bands. Like these are older guys, you know, guys that have jobs and stuff and would just play on the weekends. And they were great musicians, but, you know, they, they didn't make it, but they were, you know, making extra money on the weekends. It was really fun. And I did that my whole high school. And then when I went to college in Berkeley College of Music, I started playing solo because I wanted to make some money. And I only went to college for a few weeks because it wasn't quite my thing. (laughs) School wasn't quite where I was at at that moment. And um, so I started playing. And then I went to California, started playing solo. I couldn't find any um, places where I could actually play enough to make a living in L.A. So I found... um, uh, lesbian bars outside of uh, outside of LA and played for five years, five nights a week and made a living and was able to get there until the my big break came, which was Island Records, Chris Blackwell, 1988. My first record was released. Amazing. You know, congratulations on your new album, One Way Out. I've been spending some quality time with it. I enjoy it very much. And I'm so intrigued by how this album came about. You wrote these nine songs in the late 80s and the early 90s, but you never released them. Then when you were looking for material for a box set, you dug these beautiful gems up and eventually you recorded them in 2013, but then they were set aside again. Why is 2021 finally the right time to unleash 80s era Etheridge onto an unsuspecting world? (laughs) It's that's a very good question because back in uh, 2013, when I, um, what I was doing is I was thinking I was going to do a box set of CDs, which was a, a thing back <laughs> in, the, in the 90s, early 2000s. And, um, and I was also going through some big changes. So as, as I dug up these, uh, these songs and was like, wait a minute, these are great songs. What was I thinking? I was way back in the late eighties, early nineties, I was thinking, Oh, this is too feminist. This is, uh, people are going to know I'm gay. This is right before I I came out. And, you know, I I didn't know if I was ready to present that. And I was kind of, I was really holding myself back on a lot of stuff. So the, a lot of these songs I, I just put aside. And when I found them again in 2013, very exciting called, uh, got my original band together from 1988 which was fun for a few days, but there was a reason we broke up. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, we all, uh, we, we made this music and then I was all ready to put it on my box set. And then I changed management. I changed everything. And I got off the record label, realized that a box set would only make my record company a bunch of cash and not me. And um, so we put it aside and I went into other things. And then this year, uh, BMG, the record company, came to me and said, do you have anything, you know, we can release? We're really looking for things to release. And I um, I said, well, you know what? I have something in the vault from about seven years ago. And they loved it. And I'm so excited that it's coming out now. I think now is just the perfect time for it. I agree. I was so surprised to hear that they were old because they they feel very fresh and alive right now. Good, good. You know, speaking of 80s era Etheridge, you very famously allowed your struggling actor friend, Brad Pitt, to crash on your couch in the late 80s. I was just curious if any of these songs were perhaps something that your house guest overheard you working on while he was making you eggs or something like that. They never cooked. Um, <laughs> no, 
uh, and you know, he didn't really sleep on my couch. He was just a good, he was an old friend and we, 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 he was a struggling actor back then. And it's fun that it's fun to see where everyone got to. And, you know, we, there, there was a really a beautiful mix of people, young Hollywood back in the uh, late eighties, early nineties that, that really hung out together. And it's really cool how we all kind of got along. We don't ever see each other anymore, but it was great back then. And no, Brad was just a friend. He wasn't, he wasn't in my, um, uh, he, he did not stir my passions into writing. He, he was just, uh, he was just a, a dude that, you know, he really liked my music and I thought he was a cool guy. Fair <laughs> enough. I hear that. You know, I, I found it very poignant when I read that some of these songs on the album were written before you came out. And for one reason or another, relating to your sexuality, you never felt comfortable releasing them back when you wrote them. I imagine it must be such a, a powerful experience to now this year be on tour performing these songs to a world that you helped to fundamentally change for the better by being out and proud as a hugely successful rock star when barely anyone was out doing what you were doing. I just, I wonder what it has been like reconnecting with your much younger self in this way. I really love, um, I love looking into the, um, the music world now and seeing so many LGBTQ people um, releasing music and being gay and, and the music is, is, is truthful and, and right to it. And, and, and it's no big deal. It's just a part of it. I mean, it's just a part of them. And I just, it, it makes me so happy because I remember when I came out in 93, People would say, well, what do you think the future is? Do you think, it, you know, a musician could ever just be gay and come out and be, you know, mainstream and not be a big deal? And I said, yes, I really do think this is possible, guys, that it can just, and it just makes me so happy, so happy to see the King Princesses and Haley Kiyokos and Sam Smiths and amazing musicians that, you know, being gay is just a, a part of the others, of the information of who they are. I just love that. You know, I was thinking about when you came out in in 93, um, you came out before your giant hit rocked the world. Like you were still on the upswing. You weren't the giant star that you were destined to be yet. And so I imagine it must have felt very risky to come out before you released that album. What what personally and professionally made you feel comfortable making that choice at that time? Well, I don't think I ever felt comfortable making it, mm. but what really brought me to the choice of, look, this, this has to be, is that um, I was I was out. I was out to my family. I was out to my friends. I was out to everyone I worked with. Everyone knew my girlfriend. Everyone knew. If you came to see me play in Hollywood, in LA, you came to a lesbian bar. It was obvious that I was gay. And it was totally out. There was just this line. There was just this line that the press, that the public wouldn't, that, that it was don't ask, don't tell. It was crazy. No, nobody, nobody ever said, Melissa, are you a lesbian? No one ever asked me. Mm. I was totally prepared to go, well, you, you got me there. You know, you, <laughs> you finally did your homework and found out that I was discovered in a lesbian bar, you know? And um, no one ever did. And 
And the more, you know, my first album came out, it, it, was, it was a certain level in the second. And by the, by the time the third one came out, the questions got a little more personal, the, the, the interviews I would do. And there was this one interview I did with, um, it was Music Express magazine. It was a, Music Express was a music store chain. And it was like the, one of the first things I was ever on the cover on. And it was a, 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 a cover. That's my dog. What? What's your dog's name? My dog's name is Biscuit. Biscuit, are there oh. people outside? There's people outside. She's barking at me. Stop. <laughs> and so when the article came out, he had changed all of my pronouns that I, I, I had used, you know, my, my uh, partner, they, I had used, I, I was always very non-gender. He had changed everything to my boyfriend. He, he had changed all of them. And I was like, what have you done? You know, he just, he just assumed and he just changed them all when he was doing it. And I said, oh my God, these people, these, there's thousands of people that know that I'm gay and they're going to think that I'm lying. And it really, really disturbed me. And I said, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this. And, and I had a plan I was going to go on Arsenio Hall show. If you remember the Arsenio Hall show, the dog pound, whoop, whoop, whoop. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was, he was, he was very hip, and he was very new, and it, he was kind of he he was like one of the only late night shows that I would sit down and talk to. So I said, when I go on his show, I'm going to go on his show, and I'm going to come out. And but before I did, I did all this political work for Bill Clinton and with with the, all the gay organizations. And I just was at the Triangle Ball and went, whoa, I'm a big lesbian. And there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and I was out. Hooray. Hooray for all of us. You know, many of your lyrics on this album sound very world-weary and wise and seasoned by experience. I'm thinking specifically of the song, I'm No Angel Myself. But, you know, it could be applied to many of the songs on this album. So it's funny to think of them being written by you over 30 years ago when you were still in your 20s. Were you always an old soul or were you maybe emulating <laughs> older performers that you admired? Oh, my. A little bit of both, I think. I think I, think I have... I mean, you know, and that everyone says, oh, you're an old soul, you know, but uh, I, um, I do feel like I had a, a plan in, in place when I came here. You know, I do feel like that was that was in the works. And um, I, I but I also did emulate, um, you know, the, the great singer songwriters. I really wanted to be, you know, in, in the categories of the Joni Mitchells and the Bruce Springsteen's and the Paul Simons and the, you know, just the, just the great writers that could, could move you and take you places. So it's funny because, you know, when I was 30 something, um, I thought I was old, you know, I thought, I thought that was old. Oh, I'm 30 now. I'm so old. Yeah. You know, look at it back at it now, but um, yeah, but that song, I'm no angel myself is just, that is a, it, it's a, um, it was a futuristic, fictional meeting of someone who had recently just, you know, slept with my girlfriend. So I, <laughs> I kind of future, I future casted something. And now I'm looking back on the future casting of it's a big time <laughs> capsule, this whole album. It's kind of crazy. What a head trip. I love that. Yeah. I, I was thinking maybe I know that you did like a, a covers album of like deep Southern blues 
covers. Did you ever feel like maybe you had to mature some more to fully release like the old blues guy inside? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Blues used to scare me because it was always, it was that, that old seasoned been there, done that weather. And I was like, I got to get some mileage on me before I can, you know, do that. And I got some miles now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my favorite song on the album, um, is called As Cool As You Try. It's the single. It's it's just irresistible. It's it's super catchy, but it also has these very liberating lyrics where you're basically reassuring the listener that we're great just the way we are. We shouldn't sweat it too much. It's one of those perfect songs to listen to like when you're getting ready to go out and face the world. I don't know if you've ever heard um, Lizzo's song, Good As Hell, but it's like oh, yeah. that. Like it should be like on a mix with those like, on a bunch of songs for getting ready, like getting ready songs. Sweet. Um, When you wrote this song, were you giving a more self-conscious version of yourself a pep talk or were you already confident and like ready to take on the world? Oh no, this was back when I wrote that because I needed a pep talk because it was, this was um, late eighties, early nineties, this is about 1990. And I, everything was changing. I understood the eighties. I knew in the eighties I could do a mullet and some shoulder pads and I was dressed, you know, I, I, I was what I was supposed to look like, you know, and then some, you know, weird blush makeup on my <laughs> cheeks and, and I could do that. But then the nineties came and it's like, well, what am I supposed to look like? Because everyone was all grunge and wearing flannel and I'd been wearing flannel for 20 years, you know, and I, it was like, what, 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 this is all of a sudden in, in fashion. I don't understand. And, and it really, it really twisted me around. And I remember thinking, what am I supposed to look like? What am I supposed to look like? And the, the truth is I, I'm supposed to look like what I look like. And what I look like is enough because any coolness, anything that I'm trying to get across doesn't come across in my clothes. It comes across inside of me. It's, it's as cool as I am is as cool as I am inside. And so, and, and so really realizing that kind of telling myself that, you know, 30 years ago, but now finally going, okay, this is, I, I, I'm definitely, I'm definitely where I, I wear what's comfortable and what I think is cool on the inside. So it's good. <laughs> I also really enjoyed the video for this song. In the wow. video, you're in a queer bar. You're playing an intimate show for a very appreciative and attractive crowd. Um, I noticed these adorable <laughs> details. Like I know in your past, you were on a, a women's soccer team. And it was through that that you met someone who was married to a, an industry executive. Yeah. So when I saw like a little women's sports team in the corner, I was like, is that about that? Is Thank that you. That yeah, about? that's exactly what it's about. I wasn't on the team. They used to come see me. That's oh, what, yeah. I see. And, and they brought down, they brought the uh, one of the, the women who was married, they brought her down because they said, your husband's a manager. And he did become my manager then. So amazing. I was so, I just thought that was such a cute wink to that. And the video, it reminded me of an interview that I just saw with the owner of Henrietta Hudson's, which is the only remaining lesbian bar in New York. I don't know if you're familiar. Oh, I would be very familiar with the lesbian bars in New York. Yes. She, she was saying that as of now, there are only about 15 lesbian bars left in the whole country. And I know that the lesbian bars in LA, especially played such a big role in your career development. What are your thoughts about lesbian bars as fading cultural institutions and do you have any thoughts on how perhaps they can be revived i tell you what it um it sort of ran counter to 
the lesbian, the lesbian experience was one of, of um, lifting ourselves up and, and, and health. And oftentimes that ran counter to drinking in a bar. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, and lesbians, we, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. We, we do like to drink. Absolutely. But, um, you know, more often than not, we would find our partners than be just as happy to sit home and, you know, watch Cagney and Lacey or something with the, you know, a big pizza. So, you know, <laughs> so instead of going out to the bars. So, um, so that, that I understand that it's hard to sustain that. And the drinking culture is, is not, is not sustainable in the, in the lesbian community. I don't think. I think um, though music and gathering together is, and I think um, if there's some way to kind of move that, to get it closer to, you know, to not have it be, you know, focused on alcohol. So the bar, you know, but that's up to the new generation to sort of think of what's, what's their thing, you know, and, and we don't isolate as much. We don't just separate to here we are the lesbians, you know, there's still gay bars, but you know, it's, 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 it helped me. Definitely. I definitely got my start. It was where I honed my craft. It was without it. I was able to pay the bills, you know, without that, I wouldn't have that. And, and, you know, I, I wish that for the younger generation, but I think it just looks different these days. Yeah. And something else that, that she said about that, that I gave me a new perspective on it was that because culture has advanced so far in terms of gay rights that a lot of gay people, when they want to go out, they don't feel like they have to seek yeah. out the safety of segregated spaces. So it's good, but you know, it's, it's, I know, but blessing. it's something, you know, it's sad that we lose that. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's a double edge. Yeah. You know, like a lot of people, I became aware of you and your music in 1993 when your fourth album, Yes, I Am, came out. It came out during my very first semester in college. And I remember the song Come to My Window was absolutely everywhere I went in Boston. Like you couldn't go to Tower Records. You couldn't go to Trident <laughs> Books. You could not walk past um, certain girls' dorm rooms without hearing Come to My Window just blasting out that whole that whole year and that video with Juliette Lewis having a psych ward freak out was very popular amongst the angst filled women in my dorm as well but something so amazing I find about that song is when I was in Trader Joe's this week on Monday they were blasting come to my window and all these girls who looked like they were in their late teens they looked just like the age that I was when I first heard it they were, so many of them were singing along. They seemed to know every word. What has it been like for you to watch your most massive hits like that song and also I'm the only one become a part of American popular culture, never lose their grip ever and continue to be part, part of so many people's lives for so many consecutive generations? That I, I, I tell you, that's probably one of the most deeply satisfying aspects of this part of my career, I, I, I really am grateful to all the moms and dads who played my music for their little bitty children because they have now grown up and they're playing it for their children. And I have concerts and I'll have, I'll have whole families come, big, big, big families. I'll have, I'll have groups of 
you know, 20 year olds, just girls night out, you know, 30 year olds, girls night out. And it's, it, it, it just tickles me and lifts me up. And I, I, that's all I ever wanted. When people asked me 30 years ago, what, what would you like the future to be? I, I said, I just want people to still want to hear my music and, and be entertained by it. So that's, that's just, you know, what I always asked for. I have to know, have you personally ever heard one of your songs playing in a grocery store? Yes, I have. <laughs> yes, yes. And it's, uh, yeah, I kind of stop and then I look around like, and, you know, and nobody's paying any attention to me at all. And I'm like, okay, well, here I am. And then it's fun. It's fun. You know, in 1993, I remember not only really responding to your powerful voice, but also to the way that you visually challenged what seemed to be required for women in music at that time. The other biggest stars that I remember being on MTV all the time were Whitney Houston, Janet Jackson and Mariah Carey, all of whom are legends. They have stood the test of time. I am not shading them in any way. They're the greatest. But unlike them, you were a singer-songwriter playing her guitar really fucking well and wearing clothes that looked like they actually came out of a normal human person's closet. (laughs) Your talent was obvious and very extraordinary, but your image was very relatable, which I just found to be a tremendous relief somehow. What can you tell me about keeping control of your image after your music went platinum, I can only imagine that people just tried to change you all over the place. It was a, um, it was a journey. It was because the early, well, all of the nineties were very visually driven, very image conscious. You know, we were, it was all about the movie stars and, and how you looked. And, and I, I just, it, it it got to be where I would just say, look, I, I I'm going to wear my t-shirt. I, I don't, I don't have anything else to wear. I don't know what else to wear. I'm going to wear it. And, you know, I'd, um, I, I, I think the, the, the craziest kind of thing I did is that there was a designer in um, West Hollywood named Henry Duarte who did like suede and leather pants and things. And I was like, yes, I, I can go with that. And he made some really cool cause I can't, fit into them nowadays. But, um, you know, back in my early thirties, I, I could get into that. And I was like, okay, that's, that's styled enough for me. I could wear that. And then I could put my, my ratted jean shirt over it and I'd be okay. And I had about three or four pairs of those, you know, pants. And then I just, um, I just wore what it had to make me feel comfortable because if I didn't feel comfortable in it, it was going to show. And that's just ridiculous. So I just, you know, and and everybody pretty much understood that. I was I was pretty fortunate as an artist to have a record company that really did support who I was. Didn't feel like they had to change me in any way. That's great. That's very surprising and amazing to hear. I'm I'm very happy and surprised to hear it. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm so curious about the rock and roll lifestyle, just in general, and and how it seems to be so different for the women that I interview on this show than it is for men. I've seen so many behind the music documentaries about dude bands. They talk about just these wild debaucherous hotel parties and lines of groupies outside the tour bus and just general deliciously bad behavior. But aside from the Go-Go's who apparently went totally berserk from what their own, their own, uh, (laughs) 
books have described it. You never hear that stuff about female fronted bands or like women solo artists. Are women just better at keeping their secrets or are women rockers really living such vastly <laughs> different lives? Well, if I answer this, I'm going to give away some of those secrets. So, <laughs> <laughs> Inquiring minds want to know, Melissa. So, well, you know, I, I definitely had my moments, but to me, a bunch of groupies after it, it wasn't very interesting. You know, that was, that was just kind of weird to me. I, I wasn't, I, my own uh, sexual experiences were, were much more uh, cerebral than that. You know, I didn't, it was too easy to just have a bunch of, you know, groupies. That's easy. You know, that's, where's the fun in that, you know? And, uh, to me, it was more, it was, it was more, um, huh. Not that I didn't have, uh, one night experiences and stuff, but it certainly wasn't, it wasn't in the sort of almost grossly, uh, or, or orgiastic sort of thing. I, I, I wasn't into that. Right. So, um, and I, and I wasn't doing it to brag about it later. Mm -hmm. You know, I was doing, I, I, this was interesting to me. This was an interesting person. I, I, I was like, Hey, I can do this. I, you know, I had those experiences. Um, and yeah. And, but my, my whole thing wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't like a, a Motley crew or something like that, 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 that wasn't my thing. Mine was about deeply passionate, uh, you know, experiences, human experiences. So, uh, yeah, I hope I answered your question. I'm not no, sure. No, I think you I did. You know, I think about it a lot. I was in a, a band for three years that was all, it was an all women band. And we played a, a lot of gigs, all mostly all over New York City. And I kept being like, where are the groupies? And I didn't want to like nail a bunch of groupies, but I wanted the option. Yeah. Like I wanted, I wanted the, <laughs> the promise of rock stardom to be available to me. And finally, like uh, the last year that we played one of our best shows ever, it was just sort of like a frenzy of like erotic energy in the audience in that crowd that night for some reason. And that one night, one gentleman came up and propositioned me. And I was, I had to say no because I was partnered, but I was like, thank you so much. This just made my day. Thank you. Like I, just cause I wanted a piece of the rock. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you know, um, I used to not know how to handle when women would throw uh, undergarments on stage at me. Right. You know, and it would, and I'd be kind of like, even before I came out, I was like, <laughs> oh, nobody sees that, you know, the sort of thing. But, you know, once I came out, then it was out of control. Then it was like crazy. And, you know, and that, and that's kind of like, Oh yeah, that's fun. Just the other night, two shows ago, bras come flying up. I'm like, Word. Oh my God, ladies, you're still, you're still in it. You know, and the young ones, it, it's a thing that they're, they're into it and they, they're doing it. So, but thank goodness I'm very happily married and I do not have the energy to go running around anymore. Well, that's me. fine if you're not going to act on it. But still, Melissa Etheridge, you deserve all the bras. Like, <laughs> I just want you to be showered with bras every night. That's Tell just my what guitar tech that. It's his job to remove them from the stage. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that some of your songs on this new album were like too feminist for the time. Do you consider yourself a feminist now today? 
Oh, yeah, 100 percent. I've always been a feminist. A feminist is just someone, anyone who believes in equality personally, politically and professionally. It's just it's really simple. And it, it's not it's not a political thing, you know. And if you you know and how that looks to you personally, you know, it doesn't doesn't matter just as long as you believe that everyone sort of has a equal basis to, to work from. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how would you say that your feminism impacted your career or vice versa? Huh. I think it, it made me uh, stronger. I think it, 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 it educated me so that I, I understood what I was kind of going into. I, I mean, I'm, you know, rock and roll has to be one of the most misogynist, you know, <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. uh, places to try to make a career in. But I believed in myself and my music. I believed there was a place for me, and I just, I just kept walking the path. So I had to, uh, yeah, I, you know, you, you just do it. And, and it helped me just be honest. You know, I was thinking about you being on tour now, and, and you mentioned it before how, like, there's such a, a need to, like, commune together in a, like, through art after so much time in isolation for so many people. And you have such candid, raw, emotional music that people can really, I think, access difficult feelings through, like by listening to it, by singing along to it. There's a lot of catharsis in your whole body of work, I find. And I'm just thinking about this era of collective mourning that we're all finding ourselves in like so many people have lost so many people and we've just been experiencing that grief in isolation up until very recently. I know you had a tremendous loss while we were all locked away. Um, are you experiencing the give and take of that communal comforting now that you're back in the world and you're, you're interacting with your fans again? I really I really needed it. I really needed to, to get out and feel that exchange of energy between humans, that emotional exchange, that place that goes beyond the brain, beyond the, the cognitive thinking of, oh, I've got to do this and that, to just, just straight to the heart emotions. And it has, I, I, I've gotten back in touch with songs that I haven't done in years. I'm pulling these older songs out and, really enjoying um, uh, just connecting again emotionally with people. And I think I, it's, it's why, it's why I feel driven to be out here and do this now, even, even if it's controversial in some places is I believe we need this emotional support with each other as much as we need to protect each other. So I think I, 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 I do think it's a it's a service for me and for everyone else. I agree. I absolutely agree. You were speaking before about how someone interviewed you back. I think you said it was like around the time that you came out about like, what do you think in the future it, how it will be for people um, coming. I think the, the specificity of the question was um, what will the future be like for people coming out in rock music? But just more generally speaking, can you 
look into your crystal ball and look into the future of rock and tell me what is coming next. You know, now that we've got Lil Nas X making like the gayest videos I've ever seen in my life, like what is happening in the future that, that we have not yet achieved when it comes to rock and popular music? Oh, wow. That is a really good question because I look around and, and you would think that music, I'm a real rock historian. I love going back and seeing the beginnings of, of everything. And it all came from that, that, you know, that American experience of, you know, the slaves and the, the black music, the, the spirituals that came over being mushed together with the, the cultural, um, uh, you know, I- I- immigrants music of, you know, the Appalachians and, and this, this, melding together of, of this kind of music that then birthed this, this, uh, this, this music that went against everything. And it constantly did for decade after decade after decade, constantly um, uh, just, you know, it was all about uh, sexuality and inciting um, change. And it, and it was that for, you know, a hundred years almost. And now we've sort of burst open, it's burst open everything and it's just dispersed into all these different avenues. And you can't, you can't say, Oh, this is rock. And that you, it's hard to, to put it little Nas X. like, what, what genre is he, you know, I don't know. You know, it's, it's everywhere. And, um, I, it, it, I think, I don't know if there's like the next big, rock thing. I don't know what, what is the next big taboo? Is it going to be uh, a band of transgender people? You know, is, is that going to be it? I don't know. Is that, is that, you know, is it going to be, I really don't know. I think people just want to be moved. You know, yes. and I, and I re, yeah. I just, I don't know. People love to be moved by music. I, yeah. I mean, just you saying that like the root, the roots and where we've gone from there. You know, sometimes I think about time very cyclically. So like maybe the future is muscle shoals. Like that's what moves me. Like why, why not have that be like as big as Lil Nas X in the future? Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Exactly. I, I, I think you just don't know what's going to, it could be a a middle-aged woman and and an old record, you know, (laughs) Who knows? What's the big thing? You are the future. <laughs> I knew it all along. You mentioned very briefly that you are very happily married. I know that this is marriage number three. Are you comfortable telling me at all why the third time is the charm? <laughs> because the third time's a charm. Because we learn, we live, we learn. Um, you know why? Because I finally did realize that it's not someone else that's going to make me feel attractive. Someone else is not going to make me feel worthy. I need to feel attractive. I need to feel worthy. I need to love myself before I can ever let anybody else love me or love anybody else. And once you get that, once you really get that and you start sort of living and and understanding that you're in charge of your own everything <laughs> that um that then then you can have a beautiful um, amazing relationship that's just healthy and full and and very rewarding and that is what i'm in right now because you're as cool as you try right that's right <laughs> ah. 
Full circle. Okay. Yes. This is my final question. It is the question that we ask all of our guests on Pop-Tarts, and it is a pop cultural question. That question is, what you watching? I'm talking about books, movies, television, music, music videos, podcasts, anything that you are consuming pop culturally. We want to know about it because it is probably very cool. Melissa Etheridge, what you watching? <laughs> what am I watching? Well, last night we um, we caught up on Ted Lasso. Love Ted Lasso. Uh, we're also uh, watching the second season of The Morning Show. Love The Morning Show with Reese and, and Jennifer Aniston. Um, What's the third? We're also watching a little of the science fiction of um, a show called Foundation. It's on Apple TV. Re- really, uh, kind of sci- uh, Isaac Asimov uh, science fiction. Um, love it. Love all the strong female lead. I just dig that. Uh, waiting patiently for the third season of Succession that mm. comes out Sunday. And uh, so we actually caught a movie last night off of. Uh, Prime, Amazon Prime, I believe, and that uh, that was um, Benedict Cumberbatch in The Courier. Mm, okay. Yeah. Excellent. Are you catching up on, on a lot of pop culture that you wouldn't normally when you're on the road, or is it just the road is your home? Well, the, we, um, hmm. We we watch it. We my my wife is from television, so we would we actually catch a lot of television, and we do enjoy it. And um, but and when we're on the road, when we have days off, we spend a lot of time watching TV on days off. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> and Listen. we're sorry, we're huge football fans. I would be oh. remiss if I did not tell you that I'm a big Kansas City Chiefs fan. My wife is a big uh, Green Bay Packers fan. Major football fans. Duly noted. Thank you. All right. <laughs> and thank you so much for coming on our show. We are so beyond thrilled that you uh, spent an hour with us. We just, um, we're just so excited to talk to you. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure, my friends. Thank you. And uh, we're now going to take a very brief break. And then I'm going to ask Callie. And Callie's going to ask me that most important of all questions. What you watching? <laughs> Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes and tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious and I knew would make great podcasts. And every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. (laughs) Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have We all have a docket. Sex? 
Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. Yep. <laughs> scams. I'm Caitlin Bradley Smith. <laughs> and, and we, we love, love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German Russian heiress and she seems like she has a lot of money and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. It's amazing. So smart. I mean, so like smart. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. Hey, Pop-Tart listeners, have you been trying to record your own podcast, but you keep getting bogged down by technical problems? Luscious Logan can take the raw recordings of your show, edit and produce them to give them that rich, full body sound that you hear right now. If you have a deep need to express yourself and sound good in the process, reach Luscious Logan LusciousLogan13 at gmail.com. That's LusciousLogan13 at gmail.com. If you want to have that luscious sound. And we're back. Hello. Hello, Callie. We just talked to Melissa Etheridge. How amazing is that? Whoa, legends, legends, legends. Mind blown. She was fucking awesome. She was totally fucking awesome. I agree. And now is the part of our program when I ask you because I've got to know and I want to know and I need to know what you're watching. Well, well, well. Let's see. Um, I've been really into the Wu-Tang Saga show. Have you seen this yet? I haven't, but I heard it was so good. I want to say it's on Hulu. Well, I didn't write that down. But um, it's really, really good. It's like goes through right now. It's like, it's like the origin story, of how they all met. They're like, we're from different crews, neighborhoods and stuff. And then RZA gets them all together. And the guy that plays RZA, Ashton Sanders, his voice is so perfect. He has this like the cadence of it. It's so That's good. a very He's specific so cadence. That's not easy to do. I know. That's why I was, when, he, when he talks, I'm just like, oh, my God, the hotness, <laughs> the hotness of it all. <laughs> it's really good. I like it a lot. I'm totally sucked in. Um, then, oh, I went to Polga, which um, is the town we wrote about in the winter 2020 issue um, that my friend Betsy knows. It was amazing. We did went to a jade mine. Um there was goats and there were puppies and there were cats. <laughs> it was everything, <laughs> everything that I could have wanted. Um, so I didn't really watch much TV while I was out there because there's no TV. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I did watch some things when I got I'm back in. I'm in Maui now on the divorce tour. And so over here, I've been watching Never Have I Ever on Netflix, which is a show my friend Isabel told me about. And it's like a coming of age teen show. And it's about this Indian teen named Davi and her dad dies suddenly. And then she like, because of the grief, 
can't walk. She like loses the use of her legs for a while. Is that a thing? Do people like lose the ability to walk because they're sad? I guess. I mean, like, I guess grief trauma can do all kinds of weird shit. Uh Uh-huh. Weird, right? And then she gets it back and then she's just like, you know, navigating through life and she's just like awkward and it's just really cute. I really liked it. She just, you know, she's always fucking up shit. And it's a Mindy Kaling um, produced thing. And then Mindy Kaling also produced this other show called The Sex Lives of College Girls on HBO Max. That's got another Indian lead girl. And um, it's like these four college suite mates. And um, one of them is like this super popular, like kind of like, you know, like obnoxious, snobby girl. But then she starts to like realize she's going to have to live with these girls. So she shouldn't be an asshole. And she, the Indian girl wants to be on this comedy troupe. And uh, the girl's just like, just go for it, you know, like, you know, just, to, you know, set your goals and, and go for it. And she goes to this party and tries to talk to this one guy. And she's like, I want to be on this troupe. And he was like, well, it's a group decision. You need to convince all these other guys. And it's sort of like the thing, like, we already have one girl on this comedy team. We don't need to, you know. <laughs> of course. And she, she comes back the next day after the party and she's like, I gave six hand jobs. And now I think I'm going to be on the comedy team. And the girl, the popular girl is like, uh, she was like, I took your advice. I gave six hand jobs. And she was like, that was not my advice. That was not my advice at all. <laughs> and then she was like, I consider this a win-win for me. She was like, I get on the comedy team and I got to give six hand jobs. And the other girl's like, people don't like giving hand jobs. She's like, maybe I do. If God gives me six dicks, I'm going to crank them. Oh my god! <laughs> it's so fucking funny. Isabel was like whistle snorting. We were oh, she almost peed on her pants. It was hilarious. I really like it. It's just like a bunch of one liners. It's not like a deep, in depth show, but it it was really fucking funny. And then um, the other thing I've been watching is I was listening to this podcast, All Fantasy Everything. It's a headgum podcast with this guy Ian Carmel, who's um the head writer for the late, late show. And I think I, I mentioned before on here that I never watched or I never watched that show, the James Cordian thing until, uh, Corona happened and then they didn't have an audience. So it was just the, the writers and the band would be doing like the intro with James Cordian and, and it was really funny. Right. They were all very hilarious. So I checked out this podcast that he has and it's like fantasy football, but, but they put different things up against, like random stuff against each other. And the one I listened to was clothes, clothing. We wish we could pull off, but we just can't. <laughs> <laughs> and so everybody would pick three items of clothing that they, they like wish they could wear, but they can't. And it was so fucking funny. Like one was leather jackets. Like they were all talking about how hot it is for girls in leather jackets. And dudes look so tough, but all of them don't think they can do a leather jacket. One was silk shirts. <laughs> oh my god, mine is leg warmers. I love leg warmers, but I feel like they look weird and and dumb on me. Mine is thongs because I got too much pubic hair for the back. <laughs> <laughs> You're generously so endowed. <laughs> One dude's was like rolled jeans. He kept, he he just kept sadly going. I don't have the ankles for that. I just don't have the ankles for that. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so me and the ladies at Polka, we were playing clothes we wish we could fall off and we can't. And uh, Vivian was like, gypsy skirts, I'm too short for gypsy skirts. It's just all this, it's something I never thought about, but it's like, you can respect something and you're like, no, but that, it's just not my essence, you know? Yeah, you know, like when we used to bust interns started, like the rounder girls would start coming in with cutoff shirts with like their political bellies out. And I was like so jealous. I was like, oh, that's fucking punk. Like, I love it when our interns come in with their political bellies hanging out of their cutoff shirts. But I I don't think I could do it. I think I'm just too old. (laughs) See, it's like I love a thong. There was a girl on the beach the other day doing like a whole thong Instagram set and I was like so much respect for your butt but I would have like (laughs) it would be like butt bangs (laughs) (laughs) I can't be rolling down like that with a horse tail out (laughs) can we start a band called butt bangs (laughs) yes we totally can I'm envisioning it now oh so that's pretty much what I've been watching (laughs) what have you been watching (laughs) Thank you so much for asking, Callie. You know, one thing that I've been watching is actually a a song that I've been listening to, one song in particular. There's this band from the 1970s called Pure Hell, and they have a song called I Feel Bad. And um, (laughs) one of the the reasons why there was a little bit of a break between the last podcast that we released and this one was because I was sick and I was feeling really bad. (laughs) So I was listening to this song by this 70s band, Pure Hell, called I Feel Bad. Our producer, Luscious Logan, um, sent the song to me because he knew I was feeling bad and he knew that I would be totally into it. Um, Pure Hell is one of the first black punk bands ever and they were also just one of the first punk bands they were formed in philadelphia in 1974 which is really early when you're talking about punk they were like playing in new york city they were friends with like the new york dolls and sid vicious and that whole scene but like all this stuff you know just like all this music industry fuckery happened and then their music didn't come out until 2011 and so like i feel bad yeah, I Feel Bad is, like, such an awesome song for if you <laughs> feel bad. And everybody should try to find it. It's really good. You can listen to it on YouTube. And um, yeah. Also, um, I I took a another journey into the past when I rewatched Single White Female on Amazon Prime. Ooh. I, like, I, I saw it, like, in the 90s, definitely. It was... It came out in 1992. I don't remember if I saw it right away or soon after. But if any of you haven't seen it, it's this psychological, erotic thriller um, that stars Bridget Fonda as like this lady who needs a roommate. And then her roommate, played by Jennifer Jason Lee, moves in and starts like dressing like her and acting like her and copying all of her things and being generally like obsessed with her and and things get way out of hand and the thing about this movie is that forever after 1992 whenever you were like a girl who felt like another girl was stalking you you would just call it single white female and everyone would know totally i always get that confused with the hand that rocked the cradle right yeah that it's different because it's much more about obsessive girl friendship but wasn't that maybe that's why i get them confused because <laughs> like, the hand like, that rocks the cradle is the whole like n- like don't turn your back on the nanny situation oh right or was it a roommate 
Is a nanny, I guess. And the Rockford oh. Cradle is totally a nanny. Ah, all right. It's been a minute. <laughs> and then something else I watched was something so delightfully stupid. It was like probably one of the dumbest things I've seen in a long time. And for some reason, it just made me laugh so hard. I haven't seen it in a while, but I had seen it. Um, it's this movie called Transylvania 65000, which is also on Amazon Prime. This is a little gem from 1985. Callie, did you ever see it? No, I just am obsessed with his name already. <laughs> so Transylvania 65000 is this movie made in 1985. It's an American movie, but it was filmed on like a zero budget in Yugoslavia. And it's about two schlocky tabloid reporters who go to Transylvania to do a story about Frankenstein sightings for like this like weekly world news style fake made up newspaper that they work for. And like they run into, you know, like mummies and werewolves and vampires and all this stuff in Transylvania. But the thing that's so funny is that this tiny low budget weird horror comedy has so many good people in it. It's kind of amazing. It stars Jeff Goldblum and Ed Begley Jr. And Gina Davis is in it and Carol Kane is in it. And, um, you know, you'll basically rec- like recognize oh so God. many people. Jo- Joseph Bologna. Like there's – it's a really stellar cast. Um, so, yeah, Transylvania 65000 on Amazon Prime has a really good cast. It's really stupid, but it made me laugh. And it might make you laugh too. And then the last thing that I've been watching is the Majestic Pop-Tarts Patreon page. We really need everyone's help to keep Bust alive, and hopefully you'll be excited by the goodies that we've hooked up for Pop-Tarts listeners at patreon.com slash Podcast. Callie and I, with help from Team Bust, have typed up show notes exclusively for Patreon donors that include links to what every single celebrity has been watching for all 120 episodes. We've got totally ad-free episodes. There's exclusive content on there, including an amazing episode with Big Frida and more. Please check it out at patreon.com slash Podcast. And finally, this is the point when I would like to thank our luscious producer and sound engineer, Logan Del Fuego. Muy caliente, Logan. And of course, our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at Rems Emily, but you can't find Callie on social media, so don't try. No, no, no. <laughs> you can also email both of us. I'm at Emily Rems at bust.com. Callie W at bust.com. And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash pop tarts. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out, and we super duper appreciate it. Until next time.